1: is a registered investment advisory firm and we're located in Riverside. I'm a certified financial planner and I also have three other individuals in my office that are certified as well as one as an attorney to help our clients with legal um, issues that they would come up with them. If you'd like to know more about our firm, just go on our website, which is www.retirementunlimited or just call 951-684-7011. Now, every week, what I do is I divide my program into three parts. The first part is what I refer to as retirement update. The second one is tactical asset management. And the third one is news you can use. Now, in the first segment of the program today on retirement update, I want to talk about credit card surprises with spouses. I've recently, I sat down with widows in particular, also with some in the past that women have gone through divorce and one of the things that we found out is that the credit card that this particular lady was using was shut down. Her husband who passed away was the primary account holder. Now, the you know, the widow, she just, you know, her card I mean it was gone away. And so even though she had access to the banks and they had a trust account, they had joint accounts and all of this, she was unaware that without the credit history or income of her own that her credit card carrier, her card, basically they they say shut it down because she was not the primary. So I know a lot of women right now that they would probably fall into this category. Some men also, but mostly wives who have been stay-at-home mothers and wives over the years and have not built their own credit history. And all of a sudden they find out that this credit card was really theirs because their husband put them out, put them on as an additional account holder, but all the credit was tied to their husband. So now had they had they opened up the account and they used the account as a joint credit card, then her credit would have been used in order to establish the card's uh, viability. And when her husband passed away, it wouldn't have made any difference because she would be completely responsible for any debt. Now, the issue is, is if her husband had a large credit card balance, and he was the primary and she was the only person that was a signer, Um, the credit, the debt may not have been her responsibility to pay off. That's, you know, don't, um, there's different states have different uh, requirements on that. But again, the bottom line is, is that a joint credit card account is where both parties, uh, they have charging privileges, but they're equally responsible for the debt. Whereas if you open up an account, and let's say that the husband in this situation is the primary credit card, Holder, and he can designate additional authorized users. Then the users don't have any responsibility to the credit card issuer. And so, when the person dies, the primary credit card holder dies. They cancel the card. That means that all the cards are out there that are in the name of, you know, the other people. They're there because of the graciousness of the primary uh, credit card issuer. So again. Um, this is something that, that's kind of one of these little things that you want to like think about. If you're you're sitting with credit cards and you think that if your husband or spouse dies and this card is automatically going to continue, is, is some things, bottom lines, that most people don't think about it. They just don't think about it that much. And what happens is that at the time when you need the credit, possibly you're in a bind or you're traveling or something like that, your credit card gets canceled because... What happens as soon as the credit card gets gets any kind of information that the primary credit card holder has passed away, they cancel the cards. There is no grace grace period. There is no uh, let's see if we can you know reissue the card in the name of the wife. They just they cancel it. And I've had this happen to more than one client, and they're kind of surprised by that. And I and that's why it's important for the wife in in particular, both spouses for sure, but the wife in particular, that they're fully aware of their credit status, because if their husband dies, they could be left without adequate credit access. Now, again, the removal procedures are are pretty straightforward. As soon as the credit card company gets wind, and oftentimes this comes about because they're asking for when somebody dies, the executor, and, and, and many times this is the wife themselves, they they send out notification to all of the places that need to be notified that the person has passed away. And as soon as the credit card company gets wind of that, they cancel it and it's done. It's all over. It also happens in divorce cases too. Now, a lot of times wives are fully unaware is that when they're going through divorce, I always like this uh, amenable divorce. And if there really is reason for divorce, that the wife oftentimes is left without a credit card. And it's really hard if the primary breadwinner is, in fact, the husband. Um, she is an authorized user, and in that situ- situation, the credit card company says no, because the primary the primary credit card holder can cancel authorized users, and oftentimes that's the the wife that they're going through divorce with. And you know, it's not it's not that um, it's not that the credit card companies are. Unaware of these situations, there are some companies who just don't issue uh, joint cards. They issue to a primary. so therefore the wife or the spouse, both spouses should qualify for their own cards individually, so they're not left without credit in the event of something happening between either because of death or because of a divorce. Another thing too that most people don't even think about is that most people buy credit cards and they have some advantages, such as credits for travel and other kinds of advantages. And if the primary credit card holder has all of those credits tied to that individual, when that person dies or there's a divorce, those credits go away. Now, I don't know about you, but we select credit cards based upon certain advantages that they give to us. We use it primarily for travel and there's people that use them for other things also. But if the primary credit card holder passes away, or in this case, a divorce, then those are held away from the other, you know, the other uh, parties that are on that card. In this case, it would be the wife. Now, again, there's different cards at different financial institutions that will issue cards from both. But there are some institutions that do not issue a joint card. They just don't. They, so you have to contact each one of your credit card. And I would suggest if you're listening to me and if you don't know for sure whether or not you are a joint uh, credit card holder, or you're just there because the primary credit card holder let you use the card, I would suggest that you call the credit card companies. You call the company itself and say, am I a joint holder on this? Because if something should happen, you would be left without credit, the access to that credit card. Now, if you'd like to and more about this information, I can send you an article on how to avoid a credit card surprise when a spouse dies this is something that you could I could just I can send it to you a free reprint but it helps to explain why it's important and it also explains the different banks and what their what their commentary is on it and what their procedures are for it and I'm more than happy to send it out to you. phone number is 951-684-7011 Stay tuned for my next section I'm going to talk about tactical asset management This is the part where I I talk about contemporary issues things that we're looking at as an investment advisor for our clients and helping them establish um the right kind of asset structure and the management of those asset structures going forward. Now there's a lot of changes that have gone on of course the last 4 years we had the Trump administration that that brought in all kinds of you know tax policies and tariffs and things like that. Now Biden has come in and as much as he can he is he is um eliminating all those policies that Trump had, and he's imposing his um, legislation where he can, where he can get it through certain struggles. I mean, again, they're talking about tax increases and such. But, you know, for for years, investors cheered um, U.S. companies as they they basically outsourced. And there's a lot of large retailers, distributors that demanded that their suppliers use China as a resource for the manufacturing of their goods and services, because they know that they can get it at a cheaper price and they can be more competitive to the consumers, the U.S. consumers. And, and this has become something that's been going on for decades. And so China has been the recipient, of course, of all this money. In fact, the um, the amount of money that has been invested inside of China over the last, since the early 1990s, is somewhere close to $260 billion, folks. and. Those companies, although we've gone through a a major reflection on what is important as far as reshoring, in other words, what manufacturing should be done here in the United States, because we can't depend upon a resource that's so far away and in some cases hostile to us. And so there's been a lot of conversation about reshoring and manufacturing. That's what Trump was trying to do. Biden is still on the same conversation. He's trying to raise Um, corporate tax. That would be kind of worldwide. So if your major revenue is made within the United States, you would be taxed based upon a certain minimum amount. And you you couldn't just relocate your headquarters to another part of the world and enjoy a much lower tax bracket. Now, none of this has been passed in Congress yet. But let me tell you, there's a lot of wind. There's a lot of wind in, in going on and it's blowing hard right now and is trying to figure out how, or first of all, we're gonna pay for all the stimulus money that's been paid out, this $5 trillion, but more also in addition to that, how do we get the revenue from the corporations that have chosen to relocate and headquarter outside the United States? Like a country like Ireland, that gives great preferential treatment to US-based manufacturers, large pharmaceutical companies, have headquartered there. And even though their manufacturing isn't standard, it isn't greatly held there in Ireland, they enjoy phenomenal tax benefits. And there's other countries in the world that do the same thing. So therefore, this made in America, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see companies, they're going, in fact, they're already in the in the process of that and they are relocating, reshoring, and they're diversifying their inter- international stock portfolios. In other words, what they do from it from a from a corporate standpoint is they have to look at their supply chain and they have to and they're not going to be willing to build up inventories because that's what they did before is they build up inventory so they could pull it off the shelf they want to be able to have inventories that are on demand and that means their supply chain has to be without break now that what we've experienced with particularly, Uh, pharmaceuticals and other other things that are really important to our national economy and to our national health is that you have to have the ability to manufacture and produce those goods and services on our shores. But when they're actually doing a survey of companies, the vast majority of the companies are saying, no, we're not gonna relocate all of our manufacturing facilities from China and bring it back to America. In fact, there's a relatively small percentage now, we're talking only about 4% that would transfer back from China to the United States. Most of them, if they do transfer, it'll probably be to another country of origin, You know, like Vietnam or someplace like that, or India, where they can get a labor cost that's going to be substantially lower. So, So the politicians that tell us that all this is going to happen, it really comes down to what is in the best interest of the company, the shareholders, and the competition that they're faced with in order to bring a product to the marketplace. So reshoring, although there's a lot of conversation about it, it's it's good political fodder. But at the same point in time, companies aren't just going to uproot and leave behind all the capital, all the investment that they have in China and bring all that back here to the United States. It just isn't going to happen overnight. And I don't think it's going to happen to that degree. I do think there's going to be an allocation to certain products or certain things that are very important, very strategic to the United States, and that is going to be more and more reshored back into our um, and back into our borders. But you know I just I just heard today that Taiwan, a semiconductor company is going to build uh, chip manufacturing and they're going to go to Arizona. They're going to build several different plants in there. So you have the reversal coming is that companies that want to meet the preferential treatment by the US government, foreign-based companies are coming back. They're coming to the United States and manufacturing here. You see it with the automotive industry, you know, Toyota, Honda, things like that. They have American-based manufacturing. Now, again, at the same point in time, what you have to look at is what is the cost to do this? And these things don't happen overnight. So this, this attitude about the industrial policy changing companies are still going to respond according to what suits them best. And don't think that they haven't talked a lot about this. And again, the United States, you know, we talk about manufacturing. You got to remember, the United States is still a manufacturing superpower. You know, we produce more than $6 trillion worth of goods as, you know, back in 2019. So therefore, when you look at it from the standpoint of what we do, As a country, we still have a phenomenal amount of manufacturing. It's just that our manufacturing hasn't grown. And a lot of it is because there's been outsourcing and sending out the manufacturing of goods and services. But I think where the legislation is coming, it will be with those particular products that are essential to the safety and the defense of our country. So not only in healthcare, like pharmaceutical uh, drugs and things like that, but also national defense. There's going to be a lot of conversation about that. And there's probably going to be laws that are in place. But understand the governments have a lot of power in procurement. In other words, what they buy. So if the government says we're not going to buy something unless it's been manufactured here in the United States, that's going to cause manufacturers to think twice about where they're going to continue to manufacture a product, particularly if they want to have the US government or the state or the cities that they do business with as their major buyer. So but don't get all all up, you know, in tight uptight here about all this stuff, because this is a very slow process. And the economy as it continues to grow out of the coronavirus and out of the recession, we're going to see some relocation, but it's not going to be the dramatic shift that a lot of people um we're thinking about and talking about during the height of the coronavirus. So as we start to get out of this, I think we're going to see multinationals continue to weigh their their logistics. In other words, what can they do? But again, just bringing everything back to the United States, they have to look at skilled laborers. I mean, are we able to, You know, can we manufacture here? Do we have the base for the employers to be able to do that? I mean, can we do that here in the United States? So I think that factories, they remain highly specialized and relying on outside suppliers and capital equipment. All these factors kind of add up to what is the best choice for the manufacturer. If you'd like to talk to me more about this or talk to me about how we manage our client's portfolio and the constant stream of information that we look at and use in order to be able to make the best choices to make smart decisions about your money, give me a call. My phone number is 951 684 7 Zero one one. Stay tuned for my next section. I'm going to talk about news you can use. Hi, this is Hugh Hewitt.
0: Hey, if you're retired or approaching retirement, listen up. Retirement planning is critical to your financial health and like choosing the right doctor, your financial planner must be able to understand your concerns, help you navigate through your retirement, which can be filled with uncertainty, volatility. Certified financial planner, Randy Barkley has been assisting clients for 30 years by helping them understand all the information that to most of us can be overwhelming. Go to retirementunlimited.org. Call Randy Barkley for a no-obligation appointment at 888-627-8371. That's 888-627-8371, retirementunlimited.org. Advisory services offered through Tricord Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Clearing through TD Ameritrade, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB. AM 590, the answer.
1: Welcome back. This is the section of the program that I refer to as news you can use have you heard the conversation about, you know, electric cars use as much energy, if not more than gas, uh, gas, you know, internal combustion engines? I'm sure you have, because I have. And the question is, is what is the truth? And what I've done is I've done a lot of research, but there's an article in The Wall Street Journal. It came out on March 2030. It says, are electric cars better for the environment? And and they had done a pretty in-depth It basically took two cars. They took a Toyota RAV4 and they took a Tesla Model 3. They said these were probably the two most common cars, or at least representative of a one is a internal combustion and the other is electric. And they said, are these cars, are they neutral? Does one have an advantage over the other? And is one better for the environment to start with? And is one worse for the environment to start with? If you'd like to have a copy of this article, i will be more than happy to send it out to you. It says, are electric cars better for the environment? I'll send you out a free reprint. But basically what it's come down to is that electric vehicles at the very beginning of the manufacturing process actually are worse for the environment than an internal combustion car is. But we cross over at about 20,000 miles. At 20,000 miles, the gasoline uh, car is a more of a pollutant than the electric car, the EV, they refer to it as the electric vehicle. And then it continues to to do a better job as far as the environment over the amount of miles that are driven. The other advantage, of course, of electric vehicle is that the the longevity of electric vehicle can last substantially longer than an internal combustion. they're, they're expecting right now that electric vehicles could last as many as a half a million miles without, without having to be replaced. And it's because there's just not a lot of moving parts on electric vehicle. Therefore, what we have is, is a comparison here. And they went down here and they looked at it from the assembly line. It says both the Tesla Model 3 and the Toyota RAV4 generate tons of greenhouse gases. But the Tesla actually gener- generates more emissions because the metals used for its lithium-ion batteries. So before it rolls off the assembly line, the RAV has an advantage because of the cost of manufacturing and what it does to the environment. But as at 5,000 miles, the tables start to turn, the RAV4 starts to burn gasoline, which is refined from crude oil, extracted from wells around the world, blah, 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 you know, all the stuff that you hear. But it also starts to have, starts to lose the advantage that the electric vehicle has because Tesla refills with electricity Now, this is assuming that the electricity that is being generated is not being generated by coal, it's being generated by either by natural gas or from solar, wind, or nuclear. And so there's a lot of assumptions when you build into this thing, but there's no question that the operating cost becomes less and less with electric vehicle over time. The other thing that becomes apparent is the environmental impact. Now, what this is gonna do, because there's a push, I mean, General Motors just came out you know, not too long ago and said, we are not going to produce internal combustion engines or cars after 2035. And we think about where that's at for right now, we're sitting here at 2021, you know, so within 14 years, they're not going to produce any internal combustion uh, engines or cars on the road. That's going to have a dramatic shift and change. And the people that I know that own electric vehicles like them. And so as they continue to become more popular, that is going to have an impact upon the environment and it looks like electric vehicles are going to have the advantage if you'd like to have a copy of this article I'll be more than happy to send it out to you it says all are the question is are electric cars better for the environment become become informed make good decisions and good choices so you can either call me at my office at 951 684 7011 or just simply go to our website which is www retirementunlimited.com for more information. Until next week, folks, may you grow in wisdom and knowledge. Thank you for listening.